This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. All right, Pastor Bruss, I am really excited to finally be able to talk about this subject, the subject that is of last things, of eschatology. And the reason I say that I'm excited about it is because it is so rare to hear about it in the American Evangelical Church. When I was growing up, you heard about it incessantly. It was a major topic of Bible studies. It was a major topic even of the the books that were in the Christian bookstore at the time. But now it is a really, really rare subject. I mean, you'll hear preachers talk about being ready for the return of Christ, but they won't give a a schema. They won't give a systematic approach to everything that's going to go down in the end times. Do you think that that might have to do with the fact that uh, during your youth, at least, there was this real interest on the part of American evangelicals connected with what we would call Republican politics in the state of Israel? Yeah, with uh, the Christian coalition. Right, conservative Christians, in scare quotes, got in bed with what they thought of as conservative politicians. And so you're saying since 1948, when Israel became a nation again, this became a major point on the prophetic calendar? Yeah, I, I do wonder about that. Anybody who's a dispensationalist, 1948 is is a really, really big day. Everybody's going to mention the fact that Israel came back into the land. And would you say that the dearth now that you're noticing in the preaching of evangelical churches actually has to do with a kind of unraveling, if you will, of the cozy bond that uh, was formed uh, earlier on. You know, when you talk uh, to millennials, as an example, and younger generations, these issues like, um, you know, the, the sort of national politics of Israel and so on, really don't exercise them. They, they don't care. You're right. If there's anything that they care about is actually how the Zionists push out the Palestinian, and they're going to be more pro-Palestinian than Israeli. So this is exactly it, right? There's a there's this, you know, and I don't want to talk about the justice or injustice of Israeli-Palestinian relations at all. That's not the point. But it does strike me as an interesting way in which American evangelical preaching may have mapped over the, would you call it felt needs? I don't know if it's felt needs, or at least, you know, what I think my audience is going to listen to. Okay, so I think that that sets us up nicely for what we're going to listen to. There is a church, now we've heard this guy before. He's in North Carolina. I believe the name of the church is called Freedom Family Church. This is Randy Hand, and they have a really unique situation. Instead of satellite campuses, which they have, they actually have pastors over those really more, I guess you would say, more of a sister congregation. So the hub is Randy Hand's church, and then you've got these other orbiting churches around them. And what they did this summer, they had four weeks, and they all preached. I mean, I listened to not just four sermons. I listened to 12 sermons. They had the same manuscript that they were preaching from. There's nothing bad here. I mean, I thought it was quite interesting. Somebody wrote this sermon, and then it was distributed to all the churches and the pastors over each church. This is what they preached. Now, this might be their Otis operandi, the way that they do it on everything, but I was grateful that they were finally talking about the end times. So what I did was 
I went in and I spliced together the salient teachings. I didn't want us to have to listen to emotional appeals to accept Jesus in your heart because the rapture is coming. And I do believe, going back to what you said, I do believe that this is this sets itself up for this incredible appeal to accept Jesus because the end is coming. You better get ready. Get right, get left, all that kind of jazz. I look forward to it. Well, I wanted you to hear this one comment uh, made by one of the pastors uh, when they're starting out on this series of teachings. They fall into one or two categories when it comes to to the end times. And by the way, if you ever hear the word eschatology, that just means the study of the end times, I know. But you can just write that. I don't even know how to spell it. I will tell you how to write it. But eschatology. But I guess we, we discussed eschatology today. And they'd be like, indubitably, right? He doesn't even know how to spell it? No, no. So that sets it up right there. You're like, like, we're really serious about this, but let's not get too serious about this. Which fits the American evangelical mindset so perfectly. There's no need for seminary. There's no need for any sort of higher education. Let's not, you know, let's not, you know, Jesus is my friend and he loves you. And right, isn't that strange? Uh, but this is one of those neat times in the life of our church where we get to talk about things that, that a lot of people wonder about. A lot of people think they know about. It's amazing to me how many people have an opinion about the end of the world, how many people have an opinion about end times. Uh, they're, they're, they're experts on the book of Revelation. It's amazing how many people are that way. But, but hopefully today and hopefully over the next couple of weeks, uh, you'll get a good chance and you'll have a wonderful opportunity to, to have the Spirit speak to you and just confirm in your heart and mind what the truth is about these things. Uh, because there's a lot of opinions out there, but there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God. Now, can I tell you something from the beginning? I, so I've got to be very careful that I'm here. Uh, what we're getting ready to discuss over the next couple of weeks, this is not something worth fighting over. Okay? There are a lot of preachers that I know and that I love and that I care for that they disagree with me on some of this stuff. And you know what? I'll give them the right to be wrong. Hopefully they'll give me the right to be wrong. And so this is one of those things that you can discuss with your friends and your neighbors and you can talk about on Facebook and everything like that. But if you find yourself getting into a little tiff or a little battle, back up. Because one of the smartest men I know disagrees with me on that. He, he thinks certain things are going to happen at different times and in different ways. And, and I, I respect him greatly. And so we're going to be humble, we're going to be biblical, and we're going to be truthful. If you'll notice, there's more yellow on your sheet today than there normally is, and we are a very biblical church. Why? Because I want you to have the scriptures to back up and to help you to understand why I believe what I believe. So it comes out here, doesn't it, at the very end of what he says. It's why I believe what I believe. And so we are going to follow. Is this Randy Hand talking? That's correct. So we are going to follow Randy Hand's take on it, right, and not not the word of God's ultimately. And, you know, there's there's an interesting thing. You cannot disagree about the apostles' teaching. And if you do disagree about the apostles' teaching, you're wrong. 
one or the other's wrong, right? Or maybe there's a third, maybe you're both wrong, and there's a third correct understanding of the apostles' teaching. But this is what the Saint Paul, what Saint Paul says to Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter four: Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And here he's just sort of throwing up his hands and saying, "You know, we'll agree to disagree." This is the beginning of bad church fellowship well and the way that this works here he says this at the beginning but boy throughout every sermon that i have heard it's pretty much this way or the highway it is if you don't believe this so so it it makes it mystifying right this refusal to say look we do disagree about this with somebody else right okay so let's explore what he's talking about here he's right in the sense that there are differing opinions in regard to the end times. But as you will see, and as you already know, the way that he is going to interpret these, it's like he begins with the schema first, and then we go rummaging through the Bible to find things that that sound like they should go here. And we'll even hear this. The first thing that he's going to talk about is the rapture, because that's really the first thing that happens on the prophetic timeline. We're waiting for the rapture, the the calling up of believers in Christ. He's going to use verses to talk about this, and he'll insert the word rapture, when the word rapture is not in the verse, because he's he's got to make it fit. Right. So the rapture, the rapture is on the timeline. Or this is this is the a priori is what you're saying. The the rapture is on the timeline. And so what we got to do is we got to find where it says, or where I think I can shoehorn. That's right. Yep. Okay. That's, so we're gonna play somewhat fast and loose with the text. And as you'll see, there are times when the Bible will speak of a uh, of a judgment to come. And you know, for instance, say like Babylon. Uh, the the prophet speaking of the judgment to come, which did come, it happened against Babylon or against Israel from Babylon. Oh, I, see, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, 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 and right. both actually both. Well, right? sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the Lord is using means to bring judgment even onto His own people, but yet that's now historical. It's in the past that the judgment has occurred, and we're going to take that and we're going to apply that to some future judgment that is still still yet to come. So, in other words, that particular prophetic text which you and I recognize it has been fulfilled historically and and is the proof for which uh, on which we can say the prophet was correct right and right. we must listen to this prophet uh, we're going to take that and we're going to say no 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 it hasn't happened yet it's still coming right I got you so it's the difference between say a preterist view and a futuristic view right okay so we we hold a preterist view yeah. It has already come. Right. Clearly there are things that are still in the future. Correct. But this entire diagram of this event followed by this event followed by this event. I I know that the sound is bad. There's a little bit of an echo in this first little audio clip, and uh, I couldn't get it out. But uh, we'll work our way through it, and you'll hear exactly what I'm talking about. 
So what do you mean? You're saying, Randall, what are we going to study over the next four weeks? Well, i put it there on your sheet. Let me give you a brief series overview. The first thing we're going to talk about today is the rapture. We're going to talk about the rapture. That's the, that's the next event on the prophetic calendar. The next thing that's going to happen to launch us into Revelations, to launch us into the end times in Daniel and Ezekiel, the next thing that's going to happen is the rapture. Now, next week, you're going to learn about the tribulation and the second coming. And, and the tribulation is that time where stars fall. You've read about it and you've heard about it. Where Stars fall and demons rise and all sorts of horrible things happen. And then in three, we- in three weeks, we're going to study the thousand-year kingdom and the lake of fire. Most of you, when you think of heaven, you're thinking about the thousand-year kingdom. The lake of fire, that's what you're thinking about when you talk about hell. And finally, we're going to end it up with what is literally heaven and literally uh, the eternity, and that is the new heaven and new earth, which will last forever. Okay, like I said, there's the, there's the diagram. There's the schema. He's, he's, he's laid it all out for us. And as I said earlier, we're mostly going to listen to the teaching, and we're not going to bother ourselves uh, with the evangelistic appeals. Okay, very good. And so, so the timeline is, just to review, rapture comes first, then the premillennial return of Jesus, right? It is a premillennial return because the thousand-year reign apparently happens after no wait is it tribulate is it how what do you do <laughs> is it rapture tribulation premillennial return thousand year reign new heavens new earth yes uh, you've got rapture any moment begins the tribulation seven years and there are christians who feel uh that there is a mid return of christ during the 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 middle portion there is the post-tribulation, so at the end of the seven years, this is when Christ returns to set up the millennial kingdom. There is another position, relatively new on the scene, called the pre-wrath rapture, which is Christians will actually go through the bulk of the tribulation and thus be raptured towards the end before it really comes down. And then, regardless of where one falls in that period of time, Christ returns, sets up his thousand-year kingdom, and then there's new heavens and new earth after the thousand years. And what's becoming apparent to me here, just to get out there on the table right away, is the, the lack of ability to read apocalyptic literature, understanding the highly symbolical nature of virtually everything that's written there, including the numbers. Well, yes. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is is that so much of the book of Revelation is seen as being representative of something else. Uh, Hal Lindsey uh, in the 70s wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. I mean, he went through the book of Revelation. And, uh, you know, there was... You know, the, the locusts that come out of the well or whatever it is, you know, the, that's not locusts. That's, um, that's Black Hawk helicopters. It is this whole idea of we're going to really make it up as we go along. But when we come to those texts where it says six times, I believe, that there's a thousand years. Oh, no, 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 no. We own that. That's as literal as as it can be. Now, you've talked about this before, the whole natural use of language. It's not a literal interpretation that we're after. We're after the the natural 
interpretation. Right. And for that, what we do is we read the scriptures in light of the scriptures and, and try to understand how the, the, the Hebrew mind and the early Greek mind, as an example, thought. Correct. Yeah. So how does this strike you, what you've heard, this schema that Randy Hand has just laid out, that their church is going to go over for the next four weeks? How, how, does, this, how does this strike you? The rapture is a bunch of bunk, number one. Number two, I, uh, I think that this completely uh, doesn't deal at all with the way that the scriptures handle numbers and, and the design that God has um, written into language, in, in a sense, if you will, right? Seven, a number of completion, a thousand, a number to show just unbelievable fullness in a long, long time, not, you know, not a literal 1,000. And finally, if I might, if I might be so bold as to say it, I, I think they're not going to the sedes doctrinae, to the seat of the doctrine, right? We, um, you don't go to apocalyptic literature, which is difficult to understand, notoriously difficult to understand. You don't develop dogma out of, out of texts like this. And finally, can it be said, Revelation is anti-legomenon. And as church practice goes, you establish doctrine in the homologumina, in the in the texts that were universally agreed upon as being canon. And then Revelation comes in and supports. But you have to put Revelation behind the Sedes. God has promised to rescue his people from the world's ultimate punishment. God has promised to rescue his people from the world's ultimate punishment. First Thessalonians 4.17 says, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, underline that phrase, caught up, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. What's he saying there? He's saying that the next thing that's going to happen is the rapture. That, that phrase, called up, literally is the Greek word for rapture. Write that down on your sheet, rapture, R-A-P-T-U-R-E. And, and what God is saying is that he is going to, because he loves his children so much, the true Christians, the true believers among us, that he will rapture us, he will catch us up, he will seize us, he will grab us, he will pull us up into the sky, and we will be with him forever. Notice what Revelation says, 3.10 says, Jesus says, I will keep you, that's part of the rapture, I will keep you from the time of suffering that is going to come to the whole world. And so what we can clearly understand is that the Bible teaches that true Christians will escape the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God did not, underline that word not, God did not appoint Christians to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so guess what? There's nobody that has to go through the tribulation. Everybody has the chance to escape the world's punishment through salvation. And so to me, since everybody has a chance to escape it, everybody has a chance to avoid it, we need to ask the question, what does everyone need to know about the rapture? Well, Pastor Bust, you have already answered that question, what everybody needs to know about the rapture. You have said it's a bunch of scubala. Scubala, yes, exactly. It's um, rubbish. <laughs> well, you, you do think back, this schema, this rapture theory, is relatively new, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, you're talking about early 1900s. Uh, a guy by the name of Darby is the one who began to posit this. 
This was picked up in the Schofield Bible, which uh, had notes. This certainly wasn't a new concept to have notes or commentary, so to speak, in the biblical text. But at the time in America, the Schofield Bible was the Bible. And now you had Darby's interpretation in the Schofield Bible. And so, you know, this called on like wildfire. Obviously it did, didn't it, right? And so the, the, it's interesting to me. He talks about the wrath, right, the, the wrath to come, um, as, if it's the, as if it's the wrath of their posited tribulation. And, and so we can see how they're trying to p- put the pieces of, uh, of a big puzzle together. We know we've got a tribulation here. We know that Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about escaping the wrath. Ergo, that wrath is this wrath. Exactly. But St. Peter, this is interesting, St. Peter does not talk about tribulation as something that is to be avoided. It's to be endured. And this is why I told you earlier about that pre-wrath position. Yeah. That you'll actually go through it. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to pick up on those verses that, that you're just intimating here. And they're going to say, see, we're supposed to go through this. And Good. that's their, their okay. position. Oh, that's interesting, right? Um, you know, but here, here a, a really, it would be very helpful for these guys to do a little word study, wouldn't it? Uh, and understand what the orge theu is, the, the wrath of God. This is uh, God's wrath against the sinful world unleashed at the, f- at the final judgment. But wouldn't you say that the wrath of God was unleashed on the person of Jesus Christ in our place, on our behalf? That's absolutely right. And those who are in Christ, therefore, in First Thessalonians chapter 4... There's no condemnation. Correct. Th- right, exactly. St. Paul in, uh, what is this, uh, Romans 5, right? Uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Okay, so what do you do, though, with that text... That go-to text that Randy Hand went to first of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Well, there's no question that when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, that this is how it's going to go down. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are left, hoi peri le pomenoi, the, the ones who are left behind, don't hear that the wrong way. We who are left over until the day of, of the judgment will, after the dead have risen, be caught up in the air uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what, what is being spoken of here, and, and we can see this because in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he rolls right ahead to the orge theu, to the, to the judgment, where we are you know drawn away, drawn apart, drawn away from um, condemnation because that com- condemnation for those of us who are in Christ has already been carried out on Christ, as you pointed out earlier. So a picture then that we see in our Old Testament could be Enoch, who was caught up, Elijah, who was caught up. So we see these pictures of these two men who did not experience death before they were translated. Are those pictures of what this Thessalonians passage is is teaching? I think so, don't you? However, the mistake that's being made here from my perspective, is where this gets placed on the timeline. Well, I guess another mistake is, at least visually, where is the judgment going to take place? I mean, it just says to be with the Lord. 
Well, if the Lord is here, then we're going to be with the Lord. There's just an image that comes to mind that says, you know, pack your bags. We're leaving. Hail Bob Comet or something. (laughs) The go-to verse that Randy is referencing, it does give this image of being caught up. Is this the dead, those in Christ who have died in Christ, they're being caught up, and then we who are left, hoi petty le pomenoi, the ones who have endured to that point, are likewise caught up. And I guess my problem is in the air. Right. That's in the. That's a phrase that's in the original. Correct. So what does that mean? Where are we going? All we can say is in the air. So the judgment takes place in the air? Okay, so you're trying to put all the pieces together, right? Um, you know, I mean, for the judgment, we have to look at Matthew t- chapter 25, Uh, There it's very clear of the return of the Son of Man. He sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. This is all it says in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, so there's permanency. There's there's location there. I realize that Paul in 1 Thessalonians is not answering every question that we might have. He's certainly not. And and this is another, uh, you know, uh, this has been rattling through my head since, since he first went to this verse. He is writing to the Thessalonians who are troubled about the fact that the, that the Lord Jesus has not yet returned. And what about our dead? We have to understand this as Paul preaching to them about their question and their concern and their sorrow over those who have already fallen asleep. And what he's doing is he is offering them this comfort about the way things are going to go down at the final judgment, right? When in the parousia, when Jesus is here, don't worry, guys, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. It's not like they're going to get, they're not going to miss it. They're not going to miss it. What's the first thing we see about the rapture? The first thing we see about the rapture, look at your sheet. The first thing we see is that the rapture, the catching up, the called up, can happen at any moment. The rapture can happen at any moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, go back to that. It says the rapture will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye. Okay, see, that's what I was talking about earlier. He references the 1 Corinthians passage, and then rapture is not in that verse not at all. It's not in that. It's not in that verse at all. Uh, fifteen fifty-two. Fifteen fifty-two. That's correct. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, what Paul is talking about here? I mean, look, look at the word: the last trumpet. He said the rapture. I understand. Right, exactly. So now we've got the resurrection of the dead occurring prior to the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this how it goes down? Well, I don't know, because what he's going to do, we're going to listen to him a little bit more, uh, but he's going to talk about how in the rapture we're going to get brand new bodies. Now, nobody is questioning the fact that there is a glorified body, but we're questioning this timeline. He would say that the new body comes at the rapture, not at 
resurrection of the dead. On the last day. When the last trumpet sounds. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and following, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So everybody is going to be, this is the thing, uh, the, way, the way that Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead isn't this selective resurrection that he, that Randy Hand thinks he's finding in First Corinth, First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. That's correct. And, and here's the problem: he's not understanding what Paul is trying to do in bringing comfort to the Thessalonians. They're saying, "What about our dead? They were baptized, and they're supposed to not taste death. This is what you've been proclaiming to us, and here they're dead." So Paul comes back and says, no, 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 you guys got this all, all goofed up. They're, they're asleep, in fact. He says they're asleep, and they are raised up by Christ on the last day. And his only concern there is those who are dead in Christ at that point in time. Paul. Paul's only concern there in talking to the Thessalonians is those who are dead in Christ, because that's their question. But Randy is only concerned about those who are alive. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. He, that the dead get sure. left. Sure, that's 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 an interesting thought, right? Um, and then then we've got the second thing where Paul more fully talks about this resurrection of the dead, and it is not just those who have died in the Lord, like we read in First Thessalonians chapter four. But look at what he says. This is First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All. Everybody, as soon as the logos, as soon as the the word became incarnate and touched human flesh, the hold that death had on human flesh is broken, and all will rise on the last day. This is you know this is why this is the power of a catechism, right? And on the last day, he will raise up me and all the dead, and give everlasting life to me and all believers in Christ. This is what Luther says as he explains the creed. And here we've got this just sort of cockamamie thing where, where what he's saying is the resurrection of the dead is just this pertinent only to the, to the moment of rapture? Is that what he's saying? I don't know. Even when he's talking about the last trumpet? I don't know. When Paul's talking about the last tr trumpet? I don't know. Let's settle this once and for all. The fact is this. Anyone who says they know when Jesus is coming back is a liar. Anyone who says they know when Jesus is coming back is a liar. Why do I say that? Because not even Jesus knows. Jesus says in Mark 13, 32, no one, underline that word, that phrase, no one, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. What's he saying there? He's saying, you know what? Jesus does not even know. All right, now again, I want to remind our listeners that I have spliced his sermon, not, not making him say something he's not saying, but just picking up on the more important parts rather than the uh, appeals and the rebuking. My goodness, he really he does a number on these folks. Uh, it's kind of like pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip. But what he says there is something that I have heard my entire life, that Jesus does not even know the day or the time or the hour in which he will come back. However, Pastor Bruss, as you know, when Jesus said these things, he was in his humiliation. Right, in, in the state of humiliation, and there he simply does not make full use of all of, his, all of the divine attributes of the divine nature. So when he's in his state of glorification, 
And he says, all authority and all power has been given to me. There really was like a little asterisk at the end of that, right? There's one little thing I don't really know. But CP Mark 1332, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like he doesn't know. When he's going to come, you know, and, and you, you hear this over and over in the evangelical world. And this is their argument when a guy does come along and say, Jesus is going to return on such and such a date, which has happened more times than we could count. So they've got a good argument here. But I think, as you said, even under your breath, it's still this deficient Christology, right? Yes. A deficient Christology. But this goes along, I mean, this ties right into our the, the work that we've done on sacraments, that Christ does not have permeate the person of, the entire person of Christ. Jesus is in the lockbox sacramentally from their perspective, and he's in the lockbox um, eschatologically, right? The, the father has sort of said, okay, son, you go sit in the corner for a while, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you when you can turn around. And then you're gonna then you're gonna go back and return to Earth. Indubitably, indubitably. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a chaining, really, of the of the Son of God. I mean, to th- going back, going back to the eschatological understanding, to think that Jesus Christ doesn't know when the telos will actually come about. It's, re- it's ridiculous. It's entirely ridiculous. Even though he says it here in, in Mark 13, 32, and we, we are not denying that he said it and meant it and that it wasn't true. It was true. But when you have a man come back from the dead, this is, this, this is a completely different deal at this point. And he is, let us not forget, the Son of God. Couldn't you tie in the Philippians passage that so many people know, Philippians 4, I believe, where it talks about uh, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, yet emptied himself. I mean, this Mark 13 passage is him emptying himself, that but is, he, he doesn't stay empty. Correct, and that's Paul, Paul goes on to say that, uh, that upon his resurrection he is exalted above all. That actually is a wonderful, uh, that's Philippians 2, actually. It's a wonderful Christological hymn that walks us right through the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it amazes to me these idiots that get on TV, these idiots that rent their billboard, these idiots that pass out their flyers that say they know when Jesus is coming back, when Jesus himself does not even know when it's going to happen. Revelations 3.3 says, I, Jesus, will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And when I come like a thief... I won't even know when I'm coming to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. But he's, you know, the basic teaching here, we're, we're kind of hung up on this one detail about uh, Mark 13:32, But we confirm and agree 100% that we cannot know the day when the Lord Jesus is going to return. The irony here is that as soon as the timeline kicks in, they know exactly when the Lord Jesus is going to return. So if the rapture happens uh, next year... Uh, put put in, it on your calendar. Seven years from now, Jesus is going to return again. The and then, second yeah. coming. Yep. 
The truth is this. Wise people will live in a constant state of readiness to see Jesus. Wise people will live in a constant state of readiness to see Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 21, 34, be careful. Be careful as you flip your notes over. Be careful not to let yourself become occupied with too much feasting and drinking and with the worries of life, or the rapture may suddenly catch you. Do you get what he's saying? Ah, see? He did it again. This passage does not have the rapture in it. Right, exactly, yeah. He starts with a point, and it's a good point. I mean, there's no doubt that the Bible speaks of of an eagerness, of an anticipation, of, of looking forward to the end of all things. But then to insert words into Bible passages that aren't there. That is correct, and I'm going to read this. I'm, I'm just reading the ESV translation, a faithful translation of what he just read or uh, just inserted the word into, and this is uh, Luke 21, 24. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. It's that day, right? It doesn't say the rapture. Good it- notice, man. So what we're doing here is looking at these verses that Randy Han is using as proof texts. We're really coming full circle with the statement you made at the beginning, which is the rapture is, what'd you say, bogus? Well, if I didn't say that, I sure, I sure meant it. <laughs> but it is bogus. It's a bogus teaching, right? It, it, it grasps at one word. The word is harpagesontai, right? Harpazdo, which does mean grab or snatch. Or pluck. Pluck. We get our word harp. From this, you know, sure, plucking, sure. harpoon, you, you, you pluck this whale out of, out of the water. This is a word that has now, it, it walks on all fours now. Right, it's the metaphor that drives the entire discussion. From a passage in the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is being, I would say, misrepresented uh, simply because the epistolary context is not being borne in mind in what Paul is trying to accomplish, which is to bring comfort to the Thessalonians about those who have died in Christ. So do you think if St. Paul could listen to what is being proclaimed regarding these end-time schemas, that he would hit his forehead with his palm and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. How in the world did you people come up with this from that? I absolutely think he would. Yeah, I I think he'd be mystified at at their reading um, of Revelation in such a thummy, flat-footed, maybe that's a better word, flat-footed kind of way, in this literalistic way. I mean, Paul knows how to read apocalyptic literature, and he'd be saying, oh my goodness, you guys, you've taken this one passage where I'm trying to comfort the Thessalonians, mapped it over a pre-tribulation rapture, which is going to last for seven years because you don't understand that seven is a number of completion. And then Jesus returns again. Well, no, I was actually saying that he returned the first time in First Thessalonians chapter 4. It, uh. So I, I'm trying to figure out how he, how he makes this Luke passage work out. You know, um, well, it just says the the day, right? So if it's just the day, then it could be rapture day. It doesn't have to be last day. That's what they're saying. I assume. That's that's what they're saying. 
But what we're calling him on the carpet for is inserting a word into the text that's not there so that it fits where he's wanting to go. As you pointed out at the very beginning, this is what I believe is what Randy Hand said. Good. And and as you pointed out uh, in the in your preliminaries, I think you, you, you did it just, you know, you hit it spot on. We've already got the timeline and we're just going to go plucking through the scriptures and stick the passages in in a way that we want them to read. At the beginning, he was talking about uh, the tribulation as the time when crazy things are happening in the in the celestial bodies, right? Yes, because the Lord is going to rapture his people out so they don't have to experience this. Right, but the timeline in Luke doesn't work that way. Let, let me read how this goes. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So that sounds like that's a tribulation. That is, so that, that, is, that is the time of tribulation, correct? So, so right, but here's what's going to happen, Pastor Bross. This is what you don't, you, you, you really need to read more of your Left Behind series. <laughs> I see. That is talking about the people who are saved during the seven years of tribulation. Because once the rapture takes place, there's going to be all of this like, where's Grandma? I better become a Christian? Correct. I see. Where's her Bible? Oh, here it is. She would never leave home without her Bible. The rapture must have taken place. Said person then repents and accepts Jesus, and then he goes through the seven years, which leads to this passage. Okay, so so this is, this is the seven years with all the tribulation, right? And then, and then finally the Son of Man comes down. Now, okay, watch what this is. That's pre, prior to what he just cited. He then goes on and pulls out at Luke 21, 34, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now, what's that day that Jesus is referring to? He, Rapture! No. No, I mean in his own discourse, yeah, he's referring to the his, last day, to the last day, right? And so, isn't it fascinating to see how even in this schema that he's developed, there are just there are cracks all over the place, and scriptures ripped out of context uh, and placed on the Randy Hand timeline. Do me a favor, write that down. See your life through the lens of the rapture. Somebody needs to put a post-it note on their door as they're walking out the door. Is it today? Meaning, is today the day that Jesus is coming back? And if he comes back, if he splits the eastern sky, if he comes to see us again, will I be ready? Will my life represent what I wanted to see? Yeah. What do you, what do you say to that? I would say as soon as I've answered the question, which is a demonic question for a Christian to ask. It's a demonic question for a Christian to ask. And the Christian should respond, get behind me, Satan. I am baptized into Christ. <laughs> That's exactly the response. You don't want to put a post-it note on your door? And no. Say, put on there, today could be the day? No. And I, what I want to do, though, is I want to put a post-it note on my door and say, 
my Jesus is coming back, and he is going to rescue me. And, and it he, does. this does affect how one lives their life. We're told, not arguing that. No, and the way it affects the way that I live my life is that I cling to Christ, my Savior, in word and sacrament, number one. And number two, with this horrible burden of judgment lifted off my back and this, this horrible human feeling that we all have that I must get justice for myself while I'm walking on this earth. I am freed up to live in Christian love toward my neighbor in my vocation, right? This is just insane. I don't need to get justice from you. I don't need to hang on to my possessions as, you know, cling to them as the be all and end all of life because I have heaven, that's the point. This is so. This is a, like legalistic, scare the pants off you, walk straight as an arrow kind of talk. Totally not gospelish. Notice, secondly, the rapture will give Christians new bodies. The rapture will give Christians new bodies, and so you pray for me right now because it's real easy for me to geek out over stuff like this. I can get. I'm real excited about this. And he should be. I mean, this is a this is a glorious thing to to consider. I guess I wanted to include that in there is so that you can see it's that at the rapture, this this gift, a, a gracious gift of God that that has been promised throughout the scriptures. Um, you know, even I'm thinking about how uh, when David, when the 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 offspring between he and Bathsheba, when that that baby died. There's that line that David uses. I mean, he's very upset, and then all of a sudden he's the baby dies, and he's eating, and the servants come to him and say, well, you know, what made the change? It's like, I'll, I'll see the baby again. Right. Uh, you even think about how Abraham takes Isaac to the mount and, uh, you know, looking at them saying, uh, we will return. Uh, you know, so so resurrection, my point is death and resurrection, huge theme throughout the Bible, resurrection being a glorified body. We have no problem with that. I guess the problem that we have with is this uh, when it happens. Where it fits on the timeline. That you get a new amazing gift called a glorified body. And so we see that the rapture can happen at any moment. We see that the rapture gives us new bodies, but notice number three. The rapture will take Christians, I don't like that word Christians, the rapture will take Christians to the judgment seat of Christ. Wow. So there's a, there's a lot going on with this rapture deal. It is. So there are two judgments, apparently. Is that, is that how this is going to go down? No, I think, no, this is the, the one judgment you are thinking of, the great white throne judgment. Correct. That's what this is. So. So, Which takes place at the rapture. But it doesn't take place. In heaven, even though you read that the throne would be on earth, surprisingly. And, okay. Um, um, so then the tribulation comes and people become Christian during that time, apparently. Is this how it works out? The seven years of tribulation and then there's another judgment? I assume so. There has to be, if there are people who become Christians during the seven-year tribulation, they got to be judged at some point. they got to be translated. Right. No, 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 no. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Oh. I just realized it's been a long time since I've uh, walked down this road. 
the people who go through the tribulation and endure to the end as Christians, they go into the millennial kingdom with their bodies, with their present bodies. And so, that's what allows them to procreate. Okay. <laughs> and then, So are there three judgments? Is there a judgment at the rapture, a judgment at the end of the tribulation? Because somehow or other, only the good people are supposed to go into the millennial kingdom. And, and then, then another judgment at the end of the millennium. Because people have been propagating all along, and some something's got to happen with anybody who falls off the wagon there. Wow. Jesus is going to be busy. <laughs> I, I, I seriously hope that he's got one of those black judges gowns, right? And it's a really good one because it's, ha- it's going to have to last, by my account, it's going to have to last for 1,007 years. Well, and think about this, Pastor Brust. What does the bailiff say when the judge enters the courtroom? All rise. Oh, my gosh. That's rapture. <laughs> <laughs> All the things that we have done since we've got saved are going to be piled up. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, everything. Actions, behaviors. Sleeping with your girlfriend that you're not married to. Sinning on your taxes. That's all going to be piled up. Everything good, everything bad that we do is going to be piled up. And what God's going to do is he's going to walk over and he's going to light it with a match. And everything that stays is the stuff that you do because God loves you. And that you're doing out of love and faithfulness and obedience and and doing what God wants you to do. And everything that gets burned up is all the stupid stuff that you've wasted your life on. And you are going to suffer great loss. What's that mean? It means you've been given a limited amount of time here on earth. And if you've wasted it on stupid stuff, if you've wasted it on selfish stuff, then that's going to be burned up. And you are going to be suffering loss. Suffering loss. So I'm I'm losing my sins? I'm I'm not too worried about that. No, this judgment that's taking place at the rapture, this is that whole passage dealing with the the hay and the the straw and the stubble that's going to be in First Corinthians three, which is actually about doctrine and its effect on the building up of the church. Could you tell us a little more about that? Sure, I've got to get there. <laughs> right. So Saint Paul is talking about himself and Apollos as fellow workers uh, in building up up the church, right? And they're building it up. How do they build it up? They build it up through the teaching that they create. And so he says, uh, you, the Corinthians, are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, what was that foundation? It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. And someone else is building upon it. That's the teachers who have come after him. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay any other foundation than the one that which, which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so we talked about that just before. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, all characteristics of teaching, in other words, if you build on it with true teaching or false teaching, Voila, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So that, see how it says the day will come? Like, yes. That's what he's saying. He's putting that in an end-time schema, that this judgment is going to burn away that which is 
What did he say? Stupid stuff. I mean, let me just go on. Uh, so remember, these are all, all the straw, hay, wood, gold, precious stones. All that is doctrine, right? If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, anyone's doctrine, he will suffer loss. That's what, but see, that's what he just said. He right. is referencing yep. that passage. Yep. You are going to suffer loss at this judgment that takes place at the rapture. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I get it. I mean, I get what he's doing here. He's scaring the hell out of people is what he's, what he's doing. He, he is. And, but Paul is writing this to scare the hell out of men like you and me. Who preach and teach in the church. Correct. It's our work that is going to be evaluated in this way. But not at the judgment. It could take place. Is the day capitalized? Well, it is. It is here in the ESV. That's correct. Uh, but that's interesting, right? What compels us? I mean, here, here we'd have to do a word study. ESV editors are obviously taking it as eschatological, uh, but it couldn't it just as well be, again, imagistic, what gets revealed in day? Well, whatever you couldn't see at night. I mean, this whole thing culminates just to show you how teaching-oriented it is. In, um, it goes on, chapter 4. I mean, this is all part of the same discourse. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So the point is that we've been given the deposit of the faith, if you will. The Lord has said, use it faithfully, and that's the expectation. If I use it unfaithfully, I am building on the foundation of Christ. I am building a straw structure. Your eternal rewards are based upon what you're doing now. For example, Randy before 30, even though he has been saved 20 plus years, most of my life is going to be burned up and I'm going to lose it. I wasted my life. And it was when I finally got a grasp of Jesus coming back and the rapture coming that I decided to make some changes. And for the last 17, going to be 18 years this week, I would say at least 60, 70% of my life is going to stay. And I'm going to eat off of that for all of eternity. This is, this is unbelievable works righteousness, exactly what is theoretically completely dismissed by them in 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 dismissing roman catholic theology this is unbelievable he's going to eat off his own goodness his 60 to 70 so that's good enough for the lord right the lord says uh be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect but he's at 60 to 70 percent and he's he's in like flynn i mean what is this is insanity you're just sitting there grinning like the Cheshire Cat. <laughs> it I, is. I just, I, I love hearing, I mean, I listen to this and I think, he, what? Did he just say that? And, you know, this was always my joy to play this stuff in front of you. And hear it for the first, when I'm hearing it for yeah, the first time. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is, this is just amazing. So, I mean, think about how he's even establishing himself in front of his congregation. So when I got a hold of the rapture, which is what I'm teaching all of you people, but when I got a hold of the rapture, 
And I put that post-it note on my door. And I walked out that same door for 18 years. I'm, I'm thinking 60, 70% of my life is going to be left in that pan that the Lord touches that fire to. What is the end game of not only thinking that, but communicating that to your people? It's a great law of motivation. There's no question about it. And so it's not be like Jesus. It's be like Randy here. Oh, and that's, I mean, that's a scary thing too, right? Be like Randy, holding himself up as an example. But 60 to 70% uh, sanctification is not, that's not real. That's not a real good ratio, number one. And I'm not saying, you know, I mean, this, the arrogance of a statement like this is shocking. And it does not take account of the nature of man, number one, right? That, that even, my, even my greatest good works are tainted with sin. And so guess what? They're, they don't get into the 60 to 70%. I don't have any 60 to 70%. I really have 0%. So what about your tears of repentance, though, Pastor Bross? Those don't count either. What? Nope. Nope, they don't count. And, and doesn't this diminish... I mean, think about how this diminishes the all-availing sacrifice of Jesus for sin. This makes a mockery of the death of the Son of God, who died, why? For my sin. Notice what Matthew ten twenty six says. It says, the time is coming where everything that is covered will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. Do you get that? I'm not, hear me. This has obviously been on my mind real heavy this week. And there were certain thoughts that I started to think this week that I said, you know what, I don't want Tammy Mabe to know about that. So I'm going to stop right now. There were certain things that I wanted to do this week. And I'm thinking, you know what, I don't want the whole world to know about that. I don't want the whole world to see how stupid I really am. And so I'm not going to do that. Do you get that? That everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you feel, it's going to be revealed for the whole world to see. And let me ask you something. Are you so awesome that there's nothing you can't change? I just don't know where the scriptures teach that this is going to be revealed for the whole world to see. Now, I can remember, and I'm going to tell you a story. My cousins, uh, on, on just one set of cousins, their mother became their mother and father became evangelical at some point in time and i can remember seeing these cartoon um booklets you know these you know, they used to make those in the old days maybe they still do uh and it, they were christian cartoons and one was of the last judgment and the way it was pictured was that you know the whole world is gathered before the the throne right and, you know, there's this focusing on this one boy who's, you know, done some bad stuff. And with horror, he looks up on the cosmic uh, movie screen. And I, I even think there's a movie screen and a movie projector. And it's playing, it's showing the scenes, uh, the scenes from his sinful life. Now, that everybody has to sit and endure. Yeah, they got to watch you. They got to, I got to watch yours. You got to watch mine. And guess what? Jesus, in this scenario, is sitting there with a big frown on his face and just shaking his head in disappointment. What is, I mean, what does the prophet teach that our sins have been removed from us as far as east is from west? Gone. They are gone. We are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And 
what does that mean? It means our sins no longer have any claim over us. Do you think the Lord Jesus is going to go back on his word on the judgment day and say, oh, sorry, Devin, you know what, you're a pretty good guy, but <laughs> I'm going to hold these ones over your head and make you writhe in the mud. Th- this is well, not this a is lot just... because I'm carrying like 60, 70% sanctification. Oh, so you, yeah, that's right. So you're so balanced... not going to be a long yeah. movie at all. <laughs> no, think about that. You're 48 years old. Okay, do the math. Do the math. Uh, don't remind me. It's so depressing. <laughs> think about this. This is what he's saying 13 years of film showing the badness in his life. <laughs> the judgment's going to take forever. <laughs> It's going to it's going to need a thousand years. Yeah. So if God does this work of of changing if he does this work of 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 changing a a a scarlet fabric and making it into a white fabric. He's not going to change it back into scarlet. Right? If he changes the water into wine, the wine doesn't become water again. I mean, maybe that's me um, you know, pushing on that a little too much. Your, your point is well made. He's made the declaration. His word stands. It accomplishes that for which he sent it. And um, what he has done in Christ is he has declared you righteous. What he's done in your baptism is he's washed all your sin off of you. What he does in the sacrament of the altar is that he gives you the forgiveness of all of your sins. If your debt is forgiven at a bank, you don't show up and have the banker remind you of the forgiven debt as if you've got to live through the shame and what i mean working it off you know this this is precisely where purgatory theology comes from oh right where where sins that have retained to the individual must be purged from them through torment this is purgatory I mean, they're not labeling it as purgatory, but this is purgatory, isn't it? I am going to show up at the judgment. My my sins are going to be burned off me, and I am going to suffer loss, according to him. Well, what is that? Purgatory. Oh, the Pope loves this. You, you know, you mentioned this. This is wild how the—you've said this before, how the American evangelical— is more Roman Catholic than they ever. Isn't that so ironic? They hate the the Roman Catholics, but they've really just changed all the names, and this is this is what they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because Randy clearly is the Pope of that church. True, right? Because because and and we we heard it at the beginning. This is what I believe. We've heard it other sermons. He receives direct downloads from God. He speaks ex cathedra. He this is what I believe, even though there are other people who disagree with me. And now he's 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 batting sixty to seventy percent. I mean, this is this is Papa. You are correct. The, amazing and Evangelical listener, please hear this. You come to a Lutheran church, and the the message of Scripture is going to be proclaimed to you that all of your sins have been done away with by the death of Christ. Not to be watched again? Not to be watched again. Blu-ray? No. You may have to suffer for your sins in this life, but when the final judgment comes, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and 
and G- and the son of man will say to you come you blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world he's not going to say hang on a sec we got to show this clip all right you're embarrassed enough okay now you can come in all right so pastor bruss we have come to the end now of randy hand and the sermon that he's delivered on the rapture As I said at the outset, another pastor will be handed the ball, so to speak, and he is going to preach on the tribulation. So again, during the rapture, the Christians who are alive at the return of Christ at this last trumpet, they're going to be taken out, and then what you've got left are the people who go through the tribulation, some of which come to faith in Christ. So I don't know what this particular pastor's name is, but uh, we'll we'll hand the ball off to him, see what he says. Look at Revelation 9, 5 through 6. It says this, The pain the people suffered was like the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. In those days, people will look for a way to die, but won't find it. They will want to die, but death will escape them. Imagine the pain being so great that you desire to die, but you can't even die. The people will be in such torment here on this earth, we're not talking about in hell, we're talking about here on this earth, that they'll desire to die and they can't even die. They can't bring themselves to commit suicide. Their suicide attempts are not fruitful. They don't succeed. So I think the way that this is set up is the rapture is going to be so mysterious and so sudden that you want to hurry up and be saved, and the tribulation is going to be so muy mal that you want to avoid it at all costs. So now people who want to kill themselves, based on this passage in Revelation, they can't even do it. Can't even do it. And this is very much a fire insurance kind of preaching, isn't it, right? Uh, It's not that in Christ you have forgiveness of sins. It's that in Christ you, um, well, you have fire insurance. Yeah, and see, this is why... I cut off a little bit of Randy Hand's evangelism pushes. This guy, you'll even hear it in the few uh, clips that I have, this is is where he's going with this, that the tribulation is so bad, so you want to get saved right now. Can we just talk briefly about that? There is a huge difference in when we talk about the matter of repentance uh, between attrition and contrition. A good analogy would be Johnny has stolen um, some cookies out of the cookie jar, and Mom comes in and slaps his hand, and Johnny's very remorseful about the fact that his hand got slapped. Whereas Billy comes in, uh, steals some cookies out of the cookie jar, and his mother says, "Um, Billy, where are all the cookies? And he crumbles in remorse because he realizes that he's ruined what his mother had done for the family, okay? So the latter of those is contrition. The prior of those is attrition. It's pure fear. And uh, real repentance is, is actually contrition. It's sorrow at what your sinfulness has done uh, to destroy uh, the good creation of, of God. Attrition isn't real repentance, And so what you're saying then is this pastor is leaning on attrition. Correct, and not contrition. My motivation is purely a fear motivation. Oh, no doubt. Right? 
it's it's not a recognition that I've ruined something, but that but that still God loves me and wants to save me through the forgiveness of my sins. But wouldn't you say a master manipulator, and I'm not saying that this pastor is this, but somebody who is trying to manipulate the emotions, this generally is what they are touching on? Correct. It's fear fear mongering. Absolutely. So wouldn't you say as well, like when you look back into history with all of the great awakenings, I mean, this was the this was the type of preaching that was proclaimed by all of these great lights of the time. Sure. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, you're thinking of uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Whitfield. Yeah. Fire and brimstone. No. Cotton Mather. Fire and brimstone is real. There's no question about it. And we ought to be afraid of the judgment. Uh, but true repentance is not merely attrition, a fear. True repentance is a recognition of the goodness of God's created orders and the way that I have destroyed it. Wouldn't you say that Luther picks up on this in the small catechism when he says that in the explanation of all of the commandments that there's not only just a fear, but there's also a love. It's fear and love God so that blah, blah, blah. That's that's really good, right? So the attrition part is the fear part. We should fear God so that we don't uh, curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie and deceive by his name. We should also love God so that we don't curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie and, lie and deceive by his name. Both, are, both of those things are good motivations for not doing it. Now, attrition uh, has its place, um, but it's only um, a, a, a sliver of real repentance. Real repentance is actually contrition. But you're saying it really needs to be both. Whereas if it's just one, especially if it's attrition only, now we are, for lack of a better word, playing on people's emotions, or they're making decisions that are very shallow. Shallow and self-motivated. You know, Christian faith takes one outside of oneself. I guess I can't even think of a, a, a good analogy, but, but the attrition motive for believing in Jesus is entirely turned in on oneself. The second thing we see about the tribulation is that it's going to be a great time of judgment, a time of great judgment. This, this we should know and remember, sin is always punished. There is a period of time that we're experiencing right now, a great giving of grace in this earth and in this world. We experience grace every day. But there is going to come a time when God is going to judge, and he's going to judge the earth for what has taken place, sin always has a price that must be paid, and it will be paid. Zephaniah 3.8, now that's not a chapter we go to very often. Unfortunately, you don't have to look it up, but this is one of the prophetic chapters in the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8 says this, I, God, have decided, have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. This is so interesting because it seems like he does not countenance what the scriptures actually teach about what Christ did on the cross, which was to pay for the sins of the world, right? But if you've got this seven-year period of time that we're going back into the prophetic writings where I guess he's pulling the all, you know, the, the all the world or all the nations. I mean, he said, I think the, the verse began with nations and then it said all the world. So he's taking that and putting it in this period of time where it seems that there is no grace of God. It is only the judgment of God. And as long as this world exists, it is the time of grace. 
this is what the scriptures teach. He's teaching contrary to that, it seems like. But the thing that mystifies me is the notion of sin being paid for uh, here. Even the sins of those who go to hell have been paid for by Christ. Christ has paid the sins for even those who are in hell. Which That's what makes it the good news, is that even the atheist, his sins have been paid for by what Christ has done. I mean, this, this is what makes it, the, it's not the good news if you believe it, it's the good news, period. It is the good news, period. And this is why all the dead will rise on the last day. Death can have no hold over anyone in the whole world on the last day. Why? Because Christ has released the sin from everybody, which means that the sentence of death is undone. So that raises the question that— Even for the people who don't believe it. Correct. So that raises the question of what's going on in hell. Well, what's going on in hell is that people are getting exactly what they longed for in this life, which was to have nothing to do with the God who saves them from their sins and from their death. They didn't want it in life. They don't get it in death. And this is why the Bible calls it the weeping and gnashing of teeth, in that there are some who are weeping, realizing, wow, I really messed up here. But then the gnashing of teeth, it's not a, it's not a torment. They're still angry at God for giving them exactly what they have wanted. Sure, and maybe even angry at themselves at this point, too. Well, right? I would like as, to as think— they see, As they see what— the Lord, the heavens that the Lord has provided, or the the new earth and new heavens provided by the Lord for those who believe in him. So going back to what he, this other pastor has said in regard to the tribulation, number one, people won't be able to kill themselves based upon this cryptic, 9-6. This cryptic verse in Revelation. And then you've got this uh, going to where? Is it? He went to Zephaniah 3 to say that wrath is going to be poured out during this. I mean, the verse didn't say it's going to be poured out during this seven-year period of time. He just said this is what's going to happen. By pointing to the Sephaniah passage. Mm -hmm. Today could be your last opportunity because God's patience will end. Maybe you don't know why you're here today. Maybe you have no idea how you found yourself to this place. Maybe your plans were changed. Maybe you came because of somebody, someone or maybe you had nothing else to do, I don't know, but you're here in this place to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to know that today could be your last day if you haven't accepted him as your Savior. Because we know for a fact his patience is going to end because 2 Peter 3, 9, that was so beautiful, continues in verse number 10, and it says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There is coming a day when it will be too late. Okay, so Pastor Bruss, well, what you said earlier, just a moment ago, has now been borne out here in this, this pastor's preaching. Completely. He's, he's, he's completely pushing the fire insurance paradigm of salvation. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and listen, if this was Randy Hand preaching this, it would be a lot heavier than, than this fellow is, is laying it down here. But clearly, the tribulation is a coming, and you don't want to be there thus. You know, he said, you know, you're here to hear the gospel. And even though I will readily admit that I went through this sermon and cut out, you know, I mean, he tells stories and stuff. Nobody wants to hear any of this mess. I do not recall him talking at all 
about the gospel prior to this correct or, right right oh so so okay so now it's being plopped down on him I just looked at this second Peter passage that he just referred to and it's a really important to to read this in its context so I'm gonna I am gonna do that I'm gonna read on the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not waiting for a seven-year tribulation where we're pulled out? No, number one. Number two, this is really interesting. What about a rapture? We're not waiting for the rapture? No, apparently no rapture either. But here, the motive for which Peter brings up the destruction of the world is for the Christians to look to the new heavens and the new earth and say, say of themselves this is what i'm going to be like i'm going to be perfectly righteous therefore what kind of life ought i live i ought to live uh sort of forgetting the fact that i'm being constantly sucked into this sinful world and the way it works and i'm going to rise above that because i am practicing now to become what i will be in the new heavens and the new earth well so this is exactly what the book of hebrews does over and over again by pointing the the listeners the readers what have you to something better that is to come and that one can live in the midst of their persecution, as well as their suffering, they can live in the midst of that knowing that what is to come is better and that God is going to sort it all out. That's the blessing of the gospel. And that actually frees us up, knowing this, frees us up to live true lives of love and service toward our neighbor, which is what we're called to do. You know, I was thinking about how in the Nicene Creed, you know, when you've got water baptism, and then, as the American evangelical hears, that water baptism is good, but it's kind of a first step, and you really need spirit baptism after that. And for Pentecostals, uh, spirit baptism is indicative of you being able to speak in other tongues. So you know that you've got that second baptism if you're able to speak in other tongues, and if you've only got the first one, then you're kind of like the JV Christian. And you read the creed, and it says very clearly, I believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. I mean, you don't realize how clarifying those few words are. Well, we believe in one judgment. But what we've been presented with so far is you've got Christians who are taking up at the rapture, they're experiencing a judgment, then, during the tribulation period, those who are left on earth, they're experiencing a judgment. And then I'll be doggone as we listen to more of these sermons, there's going to be yet more judgment to come. What is wrong with believing that there is one judgment? I have no clue. But even then, the third thing we see about the tribulation is that it's going to be a time of great revival. Even in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of God's greatest wrath, there's a time of revival. Look at Revelation 7, 9. It says, I saw a vast crowd too great to count. 
from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And by the way, they were singing the Revelation song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. The fact of the matter is this. There is always hope in the middle of God's anger. Okay, so... This is where, even though you can't kill yourself, and even though God's judgment's going to be falling upon you like white on rice, there will be some that, um, that come to faith during the tribulation. Now, you've got to keep this in mind because the next sermon is going to be on the millennial reign. And we're going to pick this back up here in just a few minutes with these people who come to faith in Christ Jesus during the seven-year tribulation. So what he's done, and this is important to notice, the word great tribulation does appear at uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, where one of the elders says to St. John, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. What he's done is he has associated the Great Tribulation with this purported time after the rapture. Now, we do not deny that these are the ones who came out of the Great Tribulation. But the Great Tribulation is the life of the Holy Christian Church between the ascension of the Lord Jesus until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. You mean we're in it? We are in it. We're already in the Great Tribulation. Right now? Right now. Did the rapture happen? No, it did not. Uh, but as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and throughout the ages uh, who have suffered mightily uh, at, the, at the hands of unbelievers um, and at the hands of the world— uh, we recognize very readily that we we indeed are in the time of tribulation. This is actually America in 2019 is this strange period of respite. As the fellow said when I went to Israel and I asked him uh, about the Israeli and the Palestinian conflict, uh, he said, right now we're just all reloading our guns. But let us not think. Uh, it, it's an apparent calm, I would argue. Um, and actually, the devil and, and the world have their tentacles into Christians in a much more subtle, uh, subtle and therefore dangerous way. Um, uh, this is uh, the period uh, of the seed <laughs> that was uh, sown in the rocky soil that springs up with great joy. And then as soon as the sun comes out, it withers. That'd be one. The other one is uh, the seed that's sown among the weeds. Right. And they're choked out by the cares and concerns and pleasures of this life. And what we're choking on right now, the devil has contrived this wonderful thing where he's choking us on the pleasures of American life in 2019. No doubt. So the souls that are under this altar... That's, that's a little bit later... But these souls that you're talking about, this is right now. They have come out. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have come out of this veil of, of suffering and sorrow. Right. And, you know, my point is we are the ones in the tribulation. Is that what you're saying? Yes. But the ones who die now, 
are already out. Uh, they, right. They have come out of the Great Tribulation. That right. is correct. Right. And I love the furniture of the Lutheran Church. And it's not just Lutheran. I mean, it, it would probably be seen in, in a Catholic church uh, and uh, an Anglican church. But it's the eternity candle. It talks about the eternality of God. But, you know, I've also heard it reference to the fact that this represents that our loved ones who have died in the Lord, they're with the Lord, and they're with us in eternity. All right, now that was a that was a quick sermon right there, and when you go back in and you cut all of the fat out of it and the fluff, that, that those really were the salient parts regarding the tribulation. So now we move on, and I think our next pastor is back to Randy Hand again, and he will now talk about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so today, as we get to what you see on your sheet, it's called the thousand-year kingdom, the thousand-year reign. Some people call it the millennial kingdom. I didn't want to use words that are confusing to some people. It's just simply the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus. Why don't we start off with this simple fact, and the fact is this. Jesus was born to be the king of the world. Jesus was born to be the king of the world. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, because it shows that it's been God's plan from the beginning. It says, a child is born to us. He's talking about Jesus. A son is given to us. He's talking about Jesus. And why was he given to us? Why was he born to us? Because he will be our ruler. You see, God has been orchestrating events. God has been doing everything that he's been doing for thousands of years in order to bring the whole world that we live in under the control, under the rule of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says this, Jesus must reign. Not maybe, kind of, sort of. No, Jesus must reign. He must rule. He must be king until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. By the way, that verse there, you didn't realize it, but he's talking about this thousand-year kingdom that we're getting ready to study today. He's saying that Jesus must rule for a thousand years in order for his enemies to be brought under his feet. Now, see, I've listened to this clip several times. I mean, you can see what he's doing here. Like, nobody is arguing with the fact that Jesus is to be king. The problem with it is Jesus is king now. He rules and he reigns now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right. Matthew 28. So he wants to make this off into the future after the rapture, after the tribulation, and then say that's when he's going to rule and he's going to reign. That's what he's doing, and I just don't understand how he's patching this together out of first corinthians 15 i mean randy hand is using this psalm 2 passage which is picked up again and again throughout the scriptures about i will make your enemies a footstool under your feet but wouldn't you and i argue that that was done at the cross and certainly at the resurrection yes for sure, in time. But remember, Psalm 2, uh, you are my son, today have I begotten you. Christ has the reign from the moment, and, and there is no moment. Christ has the reign in eternity. He is the eternal son of, of the Father. When is God's today that he begets the son? It's, in e- it's eternity. And so 
it's not as if as there's a marked point in time where where this is where this changes right is christ not the king of the nations hanging on his cross he is is christ not the king of the nations lying in the manger oh definitely he is is christ not the king of the nations prior to his incarnation Yes, definitely. Right. See, so there's there's a there's a real. um, So even when the Lord Jesus put Moses into the cleft of the rock and showed him, so to speak, his back, he was king of the of the nations then. Right. Right. He was king of the nations when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. Yeah, it's not it's not as if there's some moment at which God God. It's not like Jesus for the last chunk of eternity has has been working his way up to age 15 and a half and all of a sudden when with a thousand years left to go dad says here son here are the keys to the car that's not what's going on at all he has he is always um (laughs) he's always the king (laughs) right and 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 there's a there's a subjugation that works itself out in time there's no question about that but when you read first corinthians 15 you got to pay attention to the tenses of the verbs. So I'm reading uh, the citation of the Old Testament, uh, verse 27, 1527. For, quote, God has put all things in subjection under his feet, unquote. Past tense. It's not looking forward to the thousand-year reign. And so what it means for the here and now, though, is that he is reigning currently. And that even through the suffering and tribulation of his people, he is reigning even in the midst of it, he is reigning. This is our confidence. Praise God. Well, let's let him spin out a little bit more. You see, it's the whole theme of Scripture. You see, all of the Bible is designed to bring to earth the reality found in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It's one of those verses that you maybe not understood in the future but and in the past, but maybe you'll understand it now. Daniel says, I saw someone like a son of man. That's Jesus. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient one, that's Father God, and was led into his presence. Jesus was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never end be destroyed. What's Daniel seeing there? Daniel's prophesying into the future. He's seeing what's going to happen after the rapture. He's seeing what's going to happen after the tribulation. And he is saying, guess what? It's all about Jesus. It all comes down to him. It's all about Jesus becoming the king of the world. I'm speechless. You're speechless because he starts with the schema and then works to suck in like a like a big vacuum cleaner. He just kind of goes through the scriptures and says, "Oh, I'll suck that one in. Oh, I'll suck that one in. Oh, well, that'll that'll be good. <laughs> That's a perfect way to do it, right? Yeah, it's like I've got these three compartments: present time, post rapture tribulation, and then post tribulation time when the thousand year reign comes. And Man, he's going to shoehorn everything in the scriptures that he can right into that. So talk to us a little bit about that passage. I mean, what is Daniel talking about? It sounds to me that he's not talking about something off into the future. It sounds like he's talking about something right now. Let's assume that Daniel is preaching the gospel to the people. In Babylon. In Babylon, right? And they, to all appearances, 
it looks as though the kingdom is lost. They, they don't have anything. Uh, it looks like their God is dead. Well, they've lost their homeland. They've lost their temple. They've lost their priesthood. They're in the process of losing their language and their culture. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, um, uh, it's kind of like after all the plagues hit Egypt, there's just nothing left. And so Daniel builds them up. Uh, with this vision, he's given this vision uh, and builds them up um, by showing <laughs> the people on this earth in this in this sinful world the way things actually are and have always been in heaven, that the Lord is reigning and in control. You mean in control after thousands of years, then after a rapture, then after seven-year tribulation, and then he's reigning then? No, always. <laughs> always. Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So the idea here is, is that Daniel is sent to comfort the people with the not only the sovereignty of God, but also the kingship of the Messiah. Which is always true. Even in the midst of a Nebuchadnezzar who looks like he is God on earth. Even in the midst of a Diocletian, right? I mean, let's, let's just go, even in the midst of uh, having your head chopped off by ISIS. You're asking yourself, why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why did we have Christmas and Easter? Why do we have the second coming and the tribulation? Why? To bring the whole world under the rule of Jesus. You're saying, Randy, when is this going to happen? It sure ain't now. It doesn't take five minutes to watch any news. I don't care what particular brand of news you want to listen to. It doesn't take long to realize that it's not true now. So when? Well, look at this truth. The truth is this. Jesus will rule the whole world during his thousand-year kingdom. Jesus will rule the whole world during his thousand-year kingdom. It's even found in the book of Psalms. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven says, The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before Jesus. Isaiah 45, 23 says, Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will swear allegiance. What's he saying there? Well, we learned the first week that the next thing on the prophetic calendar, the next thing that's going to happen in Scripture is that Jesus is going to step out and he is going to call his church up. He is going to call true and genuine believers up. We're going to be seized. We're going to be grabbed. We're going to be taken out of this world. It's called the rapture. After that, you learned last week, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist comes and he sets up rule and he decides that he's going to be the king of the world. He decides... He's going to rule, and for seven years, because of his rule, because of his, his position in this world, God the Father is going to judge this earth over and over and over again. And if you missed that, then you need to go back and listen to last week's message. If you missed that, you need to listen to Tuesday night because we talked about how God is going to pound, and he's going to pound, and he's going to pound. The wrath of God is going to be poured out like a flood. The wrath of God is going to come down, and all hell will break loose on this earth. And then after that, Jesus is going to show up. And he's going to set up a rule. He's going to set up a kingdom. He is going to set it up. Woo! That's a good summary there of the whole, you know, what we've heard thus far. But what's the problem? 
The problem is that he's got Jesus out of the driver's seat this whole time, right? Until until he's put in the driver's seat, until Dad gives him the keys. I guess. I mean, he said Jesus is going to step out. I, I was thinking, like, getting dressed up. He's and, stepping out. <laughs> going, yeah. going to the prom or something <laughs> right. for the rapture. But it, then, it, <laughs> <laughs> then it becomes, you know, he's doing his thing up in the heavens during the rapture. And then the Antichrist takes over. Uh, for seven years, where I guess the Lord is not king. Uh, and, and he's not king now. He's not king pre-rapture. You heard that, too. Oh, yeah, right? because yeah. you can watch the news for five minutes and see that he's not king now. Right, right. And can I just uh, introduce a few th- statements by Martin Luther that I, that I think are really interesting counterpoints to this? Well, only if they agree with Randy Haynes. No, 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 they don't. So this is the Heidelberg uh, Disputation. This is Thesis 19, and... That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. And what Luther is saying there is that if we try to deduce who God is, what he's like. And his plan. Good, his plan by watching the evening news we're clearly missing the boat, right? Yes, and I, I have to recall a, a time when a very influential pastor said to me uh, that you ought to be reading your Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Oh, a, a, as if as if these are um, as if the newspaper articles are uh, displaying uh, everything that's being talked about in the scriptures. Correct. Yeah, and and actually, what you're doing. Is what is you're you're using the newspaper articles as a cipher to read the scriptures, right? That becomes exactly. your lens. So he goes on and he says he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. It is so much easier to do the former than the latter. And this is what distinguishes between the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. Correct. Two more theses. 21. A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. Okay, that is the tribulation, interestingly. The the tribulation seems evil, and so we call it evil. But in God's mind, the tribulation is good. But see, you got to make sure that our listeners know the tribulation that you're talking about is the here and now. Correct. Not the seven-year period. It's the suffering of, of his church today, because through that suffering... He increases, he tempers faith. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it is. 22, that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. That's, that's all I need to say. So that's what you're saying in regard to Randy Hand. What he's presenting here, which is clearly not his own idea, you know, he's parroting that which he's heard, the source of which is puffed up, blind and what was the other and hardened so what what he's doing is he's saying look listen to who's a news newscaster for a big Sean Hannity okay so listen to Sean Hannity and what this does he, this is what Randy Hand is saying is this gives you a glimpse into heaven and what you see up there in heaven is God the Father snoring off in a corner and Jesus playing tiddlywinks on the other side of the room to- everything else is just totally out of control this is not under the Lord's control. But any realistic view of God, who is almighty, says that, that he is he's in control of everything. 
And this is super important for a Christian to know. My coming to faith was not by happenstance. It was under the Lord's control. My getting cancer isn't happenstance. It's under the Lord's control. And he's doing all of these things for the well-being of his, of his holy church on earth. You're saying, well, Randy, why would God do all that? Why is God so interested and making Jesus king of the world. Well, remember, look at your sheet. Remember, God's plan has always been to take us back to the garden. God's plan has always been to take us back to the garden of Eden. God promises in Ezekiel 36, 35, this former wasteland is now like the garden of Eden. You see, after the tribulation, our world is going to be devastated. After the tribulations, mountains are going to be level. The sky is going to turn dark. Stars are going to fall Millions of people are going to die. After the tribulation, the world will be devastated, but God's rule for a thousand years will change all of that. Okay, I, I, I don't have a problem with what he's saying, really, the way he starts and the way he stops there. I think I have the problem with the, the mushy middle. We're going back to the garden, no doubt. Correct. And he's going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. So it's going to be totally different than we experience life now. But he did not say new heavens and new earth. No, he didn't. But let's just say that we're with him there. I guess the problem that we have is, yet again, this timeline. Because we would say this is all coming about on the last day when all are raised because Christ dies for all. All are raised, all flesh shall see him. He will separate the sheep from the goats, which as I was thinking about it this morning, you know, we, we see in Genesis this separation that takes place so much, the waters between the waters and the land between the sky, and it's separation, separation, separation. And even this separation, like right now we're in the reading of Exodus, and there was a, a distinction made between the Egyptians who were being judged and the Israelites who, uh, you know, the firstborn child did not die. There was a, this thing, there was a separation. Well, I'll be doggone, there's going to be a separation again at this great white throne judgment. But then that's when we, the sheep, go to the new heavens and the new earth. And, and the old heavens and the old earth are consumed in flame. He's got this happening over a seven-year period, right? <clears throat> this is kind of like a, a some sort of um, dystopic, apocalyptic wasteland um, that's going to go on for seven years. But it's going to be, uh, the way that St. Peter describes it, is, it this is just going to be done. So we're not going to be living like Mel Gibson and Mad Max? Or like uh, the people on Lost or, <laughs> right, or whatever. I mean, think of your show, right? Is, isn't it interesting how American theater, American cinema, has informed uh, the view of, of this last time? So it's either the theater or newspaper, one or the other. How selfish are you? Because my question for you today is, will you let God kill your selfishness? Will you surrender to Jesus' rule right now? All right, so now he's made the turn here, and now he's going to start preaching, right? He's preaching for that decision. I got a little problem, though. I didn't think Jesus was ruling. We're not in the millennial kingdom. What's he talking about? Why? Because, oh, in a thousand-year kingdom, the world will be fair. In a thousand-year kingdom, the world will be safe. But notice number three, 
In a thousand year kingdom, humans will still be stupid. Humans will still be stupid. Go back to Isaiah 11.4. It says, at Jesus' command, evil, I don't like that word evil, evil people will be punished, and by his words, wicked will be put to death. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're going, what? There's not supposed to be bad people in heaven? What? There can't be evil, wicked people in heaven? Well, it depends on how you define heaven. Now, if you define heaven as after the rapture and tribulation, that thousand-year kingdom, then you're wrong. If you're defining heaven as something else, okay, we can talk about that. But can you, are you beginning to see why some of these sermon series are so important for you? Because some of you have been walking around in complete ignorance of what the Bible actually says. And that leads us to the fact. The fact is this. There will be babies born in God's thousand-year kingdom. There will be babies born in God's thousand-year kingdom. Go back to Isaiah 11.8. It says, the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of a deadly snake without harm. You're saying, Randy, how in the world does that happen? Well, if you don't know where babies come from, that's a different sermon. But I'm not going to get distracted. We'll stay right here. You need to always remember this. Those who live through the tribulation, which Jason talked about last week, those who live through the tribulation will go into the thousand-year kingdom with their natural bodies. You're saying, Randy, what do you mean by natural body? This, what you got, what I got. You do realize that then when we're raptured up out of the church, we'll get our heavenly bodies. We'll be awesome. We'll be able to do all sorts of cool things, right? And then with those who get saved during the tribulation, right? They, they're going to get saved, and, but they're going to be like you and me. And when they go into the eternal thousand-year kingdom, guess what? They're going to have their normal bodies. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 13. He says, the one who endures to the end of the tribulation will be saved. They'll be saved. They won't get their new bodies. And so guess what? They're going to be in a thousand-year kingdom living Breathing, working, and doing what humans do. That's what Zechariah 8.5 promises. It says the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls at play. You see, during the thousand-year kingdom, you and I are going to be ruling. During the thousand-year kingdom, we're going to have jobs to do. We're going to be joining the people of Israel, the, the saints of old, and we're going to be helping Jesus run this world that we live in. But we're going to be leading. Have you ever asked yourself? We're going to be ruling. We're going to be leading. We're going to be in charge of, of many things if we do what God's told us to do. Have you ever asked yourself, well, who will we be leading? Who will we be in charge of? You see, during the thousand-year reign, the people who made it through the tribulation without dying, they will repopulate the earth. And by the way, think about how many babies they can have in a thousand years. Think about how many children can happen. By the way, imagine what's going on during that time. And those children will repopulate the earth. You see, the people, the, the Christians that make it through the tribulation, they will not get their new heavenly bodies until they die. Now, some of you are going, oh, man, my brain's no. There's death in heaven? Again, depends on what you define in heaven. During the thousand-year reign, Isaiah 65, 20 says, During God's kingdom, no longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. So guess what? 
Those children that are born during the thousand-year reign, they're going to have the same opportunity you and I have to get saved. And guess what? Some of them will not. They will choose not to get saved. And that's the children that, will, that, that, will, that Revelation 27 and 8 that's talking about. It says Satan will be set free from his thousand-year prison. He will go out to cause people to believe lies, as many people as the grains of the sands on the seashore. So during that thousand years, think about this. There are going to be babies that are born. There are going to be children that are growing up. And they're going to have an opportunity to get saved. They're going to be living in the Garden of Eden. They're going to be living in perfection. And yet they're going to make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. They're going to believe the lie of Satan. Again, remember, what's the thousand-year reign? God taking us back to the Garden of Eden. Well, is it any shock that after a thousand years, the Satan, that snake, comes out and he deceives Many. You're saying, uh-oh, that didn't sound good. What happens next? Okay. I, oh, man, Pastor Russ, that was hard for me to uh, let you listen to. I can't believe we got through that. I was uh, writhing like a snake. I know. I know. It was lovely to see. So he's laid it all out here. We've talked about this before, that the tribulation, even the last guy, said like people will not be able to die during this period of time. And that seven years that God is pouring out the wrath again and again and again, or however Randy said. Then what happens is there are these people with their natural bodies who enter into the millennium, and they're going to do the hoochie-coo with whoever I guess they do the hoochie-coo with. (laughs) And they're going to have little guys and little girls. And I guess the people who are raptured out and get these glorified bodies, they don't get to do the hoochie-coo with anybody and so you've got the you've got the glorified bodies on one side and you got the natural born bodies on the other it's like um we've got spirit yes we do we've got spirit how about you so you've got two teams already going on jesus is always kind of the referee you know because we're ruling with reigning with him and so then the offspring of the natural bodied people once the devil is released from the pit that he's in after a thousand years, and he will deceive the world. And a lot of people will go along with the devil. I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Uh, it's, it, it, to me, it's astonishing, actually, that he takes the poetic language of Isaiah, right? A child playing over an adder's den and things like this as um literally that's number one but that's how they roll it is number two he's gone cherry picking through the scriptures uh on the tribulation verses um and basically what he's done is he's he's used one of the more confusing books of the bible specifically revelation where time frame is shifting constantly and there's all of this amazing imagery and numerology and so on and and he's created a schema out of that and then he takes uh, verbal echoes in the other scriptures and plops them into this schema in revelation but i want to just bring up two verses that i think are really important and that actually um, these are clear scriptures that help us interpret the unclear jesus at the end of uh, john chapter 16 1633 I have said these things to you in order that you might have peace in me. In the world you, present tense, have tribulation. But take heart, I have 
overcome the world. Um, I have had victory over the world. So the word here is thlepsis. This is tribulation. Jesus is saying this prior to his crucifixion. Uh, this does not fit on the timeline for tribulation, right? In, in Randy's timeline, tribulation comes way at the end. St. Paul in Romans chapter 5. Well, even going back to that for just a second, when Jesus says that he's overcome the world, Randy would have to put that into the millennial kingdom. But Jesus is saying, that's now I've overcome the world. Right. So that even amidst the afflictions of this world, Christ reigns. He reigns in suffering. And in fact, quintessentially in his own suffering and death on the cross. Romans 5, 2 and 3. Through this, uh, through, through him, um, we have uh, gained entree by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we boast even in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience or endurance. So again, Paul is talking about Thlepsis, this is the same exact word, Thlepsis. This is the great tribulation. It's hey megale Thlepsis. Look, folks, we're living the Thlepsis right now. But this schema, it is, number one, it's, it's clearly dispensational. So it follows this segment. Everything goes down to a, a segment of time. Dispensationalists would say we're living in the age of the church or living in the age of grace. You'll hear that as well. And the, what's going to end this age is going to be this rapture that, that cranks everything up into a different dispensation. And these uh, dispensations, interestingly enough, are always started by this cataclysmic event. Uh, the fall, for instance, was a cataclysmic event that ended that dispensation. Uh, the flood, for instance, ended that next dispensation. Well, the rapture is going to end this dispensation, and then this releasing of the devil to deceive the nations before the Lord yet again judges, that's going to end that dispensation. So it really does fall neatly if you think in terms of dispensations or, or seasons. But I think your point is this is a, a huge fabrication it is, and that the seasons... Uh, so, is, is Matthew 28, uh, verse, uh, verse 19 true? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Is that true today? Absolutely. Is John sixteen thirty three true today? In this world you have phlepsis. Yes. And, and what it is, is this strange attempt to, to sort of put everything in its own nice little cubby hole, to put it in cubby holes that the scriptures don't put it into. That's exactly what's happening. See, it teaches so good. Oh, yeah. You can draw out your timeline. You can place yourself on the timeline. You say, can write books. My is gonna be here. He gonna be here soon, yeah. Notice the truth. The truth is this. God has no tolerance for rebellion. God has no tolerance for rebellion. Revelation 29, it's talking about the end of the thousand-year reign, shows God's heart. It says, fire from heaven came down on the deceived people and consumed them. 
Okay, so that's what I was talking about earlier. That's that cataclysmic event that will end this dispensation. So when the devil is released to deceive, then there is a war with the devil leading it. And then when the Lord steps in, he destroys the rebellion, which ends this thousand-year reign of Christ. So the people are straight. Revelation chapter 20, uh, he's reading as if there are numerous thousand-year periods. Uh, and John, the writer, uh, uses these these uh, words, these, uh, well, temporal words, then. For example, in verse 4, then I saw. That's after the first mention of this thousand-year period. And so what they're doing is they're lining up John's temporal words as if John is as if as if the events that John is seeing are happening sequentially rather than understanding that John is saying this is the vision I saw of the thousand year reign and then this is the vi- this is another vision I saw of the thousand year reign and it's important to see what the then is attached to the then is not attached to this sort of sequence of events it's attached to to snippets of what John is seeing But wouldn't you say that what John is seeing is the same thing over and over and over, just describing it somewhat differently? Right. It's like it's like he's looking into a box that has three or four windows on it. And he looks on the lower left hand corner window and that's what he sees. Then he goes up to the top and looks down through the skylight and that's what he sees. And then he goes to the other side and looks in and that's what he sees. Which is a good analogy for this type of literature, this apocalyptic literature. This is uh, what you're describing here seems to be the form and substance of of how apocalyptic vision is given. Right. Mm -hmm. I would agree. It's not cleanly laid out. There is overlap and there's textures and mixtures. You know, it's kind of like a came home the other day and my wife was doing something for the kids in her class. She had a uh, essentially a cupcake pan, a muffin pan, and she was uh, putting crayons, breaking up crayons in it and, and putting them in these heart-shaped little uh, molds to put them in the oven, melt them down. Well, when they came out, it was quite interesting. I mean, they, these things were, were beautiful, but you couldn't cut out the purple from the red in this in this mold you, you you there's no way they were they were too blended together to get them back the way that they were that, originally put in that is a perfect analogy i love that analogy so so what john is doing is he's n- it's not like he's looking at a cross section of a casserole or chocolate chip cookie even where you can separate the chocolate chip cookie from the the cookie uh, or the chocolate chip from the cookie that's a, that's a fantastic analogy. Well, Pastor Bruss, I know that you're very upset by this, but that's the end of the third sermon and the second one that we've heard by Randy Hand. And so now we're going to hear one of the other pastors, and now he's going to take us home, like literally. We're finally going to go into the new heavens and the new earth. Again, all of these sermons are really pushing a decision. Either A, rapture, you want this to happen, so get saved. B, tribulation, you want to avoid this, so get saved. C, we're all going into the 
millennial kingdom, whether you like it or not, but you really want to have that glorified body, unless you want to do the hoochie coo with your natural body. Uh, but boy, you got to go through seven years of pain in order to do the hoochie coo. So now we're finally going to get to new heaven and new earth. In the meantime, let's do a, a little bit of a review for those of you who haven't been here, and I do encourage you to go out to Facebook, go out to the YouTube page, and see the videos in this series. We are concluding our series today um, on the topic of heaven. You may have noticed when you were looking at Revelation 22 that that's the end of the book. That's as far as it goes. So today is the uh, last one in this series. Let's look at this fact. If Jesus comes back today, it'll be a a thousand and seven years before we experience what we think of when we think of heaven. A thousand and seven years. And the reason for that is because the next event on God's calendar is actually the rapture. We talked about the rapture. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. It says this, the Lord himself will come down from heaven and those who have died believing in Christ will rise first. After that, we are who are still alive will be gathered up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the rapture is the first thing on God's timeline that will take place. Following that, the world is going to go through a seven-year tribulation, a time of judging. While the Christians are judged in heaven, those that are left here will go through a tribulation for seven years. We looked in detail at that. Matthew 24, 21 says, There will be a great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now, and never will again. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We Christians must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each Christian may receive their due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We're going to go through a judgment as believers during the time of the tribulation. Then there's going to be that thousand-year reign that we talked about last week, the thousand-year reign of Christ here on the earth. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, Christians reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Then finally, after all of that, we finally get to experience the kingdom of heaven like we've talked about it in the Bible, like we are looking forward to. It'll finally take place. Here's an example. If today the rapture begins, if today the rapture takes place, it would be year 3025 before we finally experience what we think of when we think of heaven. So what do you think? We think, well, when we die, we go to heaven. And that's true. But what we're going to find is that's the old heaven. And there's going to be a new heaven. So let's look at Revelation chapter 22 and what the Bible says about heaven, the heaven we think of. Revelation 22, verses 3 through 7. So what do you think about that, Pastor Bruss? Really, the heaven that we're all looking for is, if it happens today, uh, is a thousand seven years. My goodness, this does not, this does not give me comfort. There's no comfort, and it's against what the scriptures teach. Uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So either he's exceptional or Jesus is telling us what actually happens to those who die in the faith. Just as um, the other scripture says, um, it is appointed for every man a time to die, and after that, the judgment. Basically, what this does is it returns Roman Catholic theology. There's this sort of um, purgatory period or something like that, isn't there? The curse of sin is going to permanently be removed. No more evil, no more gossip. No more lies, no more selfishness. In fact, we are going to go back to a time 
like it was when God created the Garden of Eden and placed Adam and Eve there, we're going to go back to the Garden. We're going to have a time free from sin and free from the punishment of sin. And then we are going to be free to do one thing and one thing only, and that's what heaven is really all about, and that is to worship. Everything we do in our lives will be to worship. He's got this right. Yeah, there's really no problem here. It just, you're just throwing it way off into, let me say it like this. And I've heard you say this before, and it's really a mind bender of a thought. This whole notion that when we die, just as the verses that you were just referencing, there is this eschatological collapsing of time. When we die, we leave this existence and we enter eternity. And so the end time, right, the eschaton, is the, is the coming to end, if you will, of time and the creation as we know it, as it meets eternity. And this happens for every individual when they leave this body. So Jesus could say, because he knew that, he could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Right. There's no purgatory-like place that he has to go. There's no thousand-year reign that we've got to get through first. There's no seven years of me judging the Christians before any of this happens. It's, it's a here and now for those who have died. Eternity is a here and is their present reality and their ever present reality, isn't it? This this business about worshiping the Lord uh, uh, interests me too. Um, in the New Testament, uh, worship of God is you know, when we think of worship today, we think of what we do in church on Sunday morning. The way that the New Testament talks about worship is that our bodies are become these living sacrifices. And what does that mean? It means that through them, we serve our neighbor. I'm just speculating here. I know that we're going to be singing in heaven. The Revelation gives us this, this wonderful song interspersed throughout the whole text. But the worship that, that we will render to the Lord, will it not be perfect service to neighbor under the law? And if I'm not mistaken, go, go to the... I think it's the end of Hebrews. I can't even remember the passage, but it all—it almost seems to suggest that when the preacher is preaching this sermon that we call an epistle, there's this aspect where he says that all these people who have died in the Lord by having faith in him and who are, uh, as you say, in eternity— they're waiting on us for it to be completed. So, yeah, this is Hebrews 11, 39 to 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You see that? Like there's, there's an aspect of, of all those who die in faith, they're waiting on us. They are, and uh, are these the ones, uh, as it were, under the incense altar in heaven? Saying, saying how, how long? How long, O oh Lord? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's here with us for a thousand years, and then he says, now we're going to start all over, and we're going to have a new heaven, and we're going to have a new earth, and all the old things are going to pass away. Everything's going to be new. So would you rack this up, Pastor Bross, as being heretical? I mean, there is truth here, 
but I mean, isn't all truth? I mean, isn't uh, isn't there a little bit of truth uh, in all heresy? Sure. Is it heresy or is it simply false doctrine? Uh, heresy being a claim. Well, we know it's it, not orthodoxy. Correct. Heresy being an untruth about the very being of God. I'm not sure. I, you know, I'm not sure. But it is clearly heterodox. Okay? Clearly heterodox teaching. God's going to make things new, and we don't have to struggle with the things that we struggle with in this life. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. I know i got to wait a thousand and seven years for it, but I'm looking forward. Let's get it going now. <laughs> He's got the, I mean, <laughs> this is something you can set your clock by, is it not? Well, Jesus doesn't know when he's going to come again, but boy. But when he is here, <laughs> get your Timex out. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, you think about the number of calendars that the Lutherans receive on a, uh, you, you know, on a yearly, on an annual basis. You know, we've got all kinds of calendars and, uh, boy, you get you got to stock up. You know, you're going to have 1,007 calendars that you're going to have to burn through before <laughs> the new heavens and the new earth, you know. So this is the heterodox teaching of the end times that a lot of American evangelicals, uh, they might not be able to uh, demonstrate it or explain every aspect, but but this really this really is it. I mean, we have heard the whole kit and caboodle from these four sermons um so what would you having listened to them all what would you what would what would be the the thing that you would want to leave our audience with pastor bruss the truth of scripture is much simpler and it's that the lord jesus is going to return once uh, and at that uh, you've already explained you've already laid it all out pastor kearns he's going to return once he's going to raise up all of the dead, um, those who are left behind will be caught up uh, with the dead in the air. There will be a judgment, a separation of uh, sheep from goats. And these are the elect from those who are condemned uh, by their own unbelief. Uh, there will be a destruction of the heavens and the earth. That doesn't mean God's heaven will be destroyed, but uh, that the space and sky that we know will be uh, destroyed. And the Lord will create a new heavens and a new earth uh, on which and in which the blessed uh, and elect of his father will live for eternity in bliss and righteousness forever. So for those people who are alive when this happens, this is where the scriptures teach about how there will be given them a glorified body in the twinkling of an eye. Right. Uh, but for those who die in the Lord and say the Lord should tarry from what you've been explaining for the next 200 years, those who die in the Lord immediately enter the presence of God. We're, we don't know a lot about what happens there other than we can say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. <laughs> right, as St. As Paul says, isn't this a f just a fascinating thing that— that what this schema does is it robs the dead in Christ of the bliss of heaven. And another very important point that needs to be made is that we are in the tribulation. The time of tribulation is, well, I mean, Jesus even says it in the present tense in John sixteen thirty three before he is crucified. As long as there has been God's people on earth have lived under the cross. 
That is, they've lived a life of suffering. Think about the great heroes of the faith. Abraham uh, and, and his sufferings. Jacob and his sufferings. Abel and his sufferings. Just, it starts all the way back then. Adam and his sufferings. He had to watch his own children murder one the other. The tribulation is now, and yet the Lord Christ reigns and has reigned in eternity, uh, working all things uh, for the good of his holy Christian church on earth. So what I was taught growing up is really what we've listened to here, and it's so interesting to me how the last days are still seen as something in the future. But I believe it's Peter, isn't it, who says something like, we're living in the last days, even in his time frame. And, and why, it, why is this the time? It's because the Son of God has come in the flesh and permanently joined himself with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And this ushers in the Messianic age. And even when he did that, he was still, as you pointed out, he was still ruling and reigning. Yeah, there's that wonderful Lutheran hymn, actually. The Virgin Mary's lullaby calms the infant Lord most high. Upon her lap content is he who keeps the earth and sky and sea. Alleluia. Well, you have been listening to the Pluck Chicken podcast, and if you've gotten all this way to the end and the rapture hasn't occurred, we are <laughs> glad to have had you along. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. You're saying, well, Randy... <laughs>